Welcome to What's Your Focus Today, the one and only resource that will get you back on track and focused with your host, Yvonne DeMonk. Focused on disruptive startups that are radically changing the rules. Focused on financial technology as it continues to drive a big part of your life. And focused on gaming and gamification strategies as the new rulers of the universe. So, what's your focus today? Chris Skinner, author, speaker, and troublemaker. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you today? Yeah, good. Great to see you, Anne. And uh, you know, it's amazing how we can all network um, globally, even though we're local and locked in. Absolutely. And we haven't spoken in person before, but I've uh, followed your work for a very long time. Obviously, a very interesting past. But for people who don't know you, maybe quickly, uh, who is Chris Skinner? Well, I'm a guy who spent most of his life working for technology companies, uh, servicing and delivering solutions to banks and insurance companies. For most of my life, I've worked around business process reengineering and business transformation with technology. And uh, I lost my full-time job in 2002. And whilst looking for a proper job, my hobbies became my job, which is writing and talking and speaking and networking with people in banking and technology about the future of banking and technology. Perfect. And so before we dig into some of the questions that I have, actually, you, um, you're currently in Poland, I believe. Can you, can you just, you know, for our audience, tell, tell me how did you end up there? It's not your sort of number one location people would think of, but it's very interesting. I love Poland. So maybe a little bit of color there. Yeah, I mean, like most people, I ended up here because of love. So my wife is Polish, and we uh, had a couple of little twin boys a few years ago. Uh, they're now just past four years old, and um, wanted to be near her family and her network of uh, relations and friends. So uh, yeah, we moved here a couple of years ago, and to be honest, it's, it's ideal. I mean, it's a really nice open society geared up for the modern world. Sixth largest economy in Europe now. Um, it was 25th. 30 years ago, so it's a booming economy. And um, I didn't speak Polish, but for the last two months, I've been learning Polish because that's one thing you can do wow. when you're locked in. So, Wonderful. In general, with, with COVID-19, how is Poland uh, handling it? Because I don't read too much about it. Are they, are they, 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 you know, they a locked, bit of the curve? Or? They locked down very early on. Um, I mean, literally within two weeks of the first case, they closed the borders and canceled all flights, uh, which is quite amazing considering that America and Britain took about two months to make that decision. So there have been a few cases, but it's in the hundreds, not in the thousands. And the worst part at the moment is in Silesia, which is in the um, southwest of Poland, where the miners are, because the miners got um, coronavirus and it spread very quickly in the mines. But outside there, you don't really hear much. And now they're easing the lockdown slowly but surely. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that. So let's, let's talk about fintech and financial services, right? So your last book called Digital Humans, I admit I haven't read it yet. I've read a lot of your former work, but um, in, in looking at some of the things there, uh, you select actually five major financial institutions to discuss the, the topic of digitalization, right? And, and five names, why these five names? First of all, who are they? And how did you get to select these, these five names and why are they in the book? And why did you want to book, write a book about it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, every book I've written in the last um, six or seven years has been um, a mixture of my opinions backed up by interviews and case studies. And in Digital Human, for example, the theme was financial inclusion. And the best company that illustrates that strategy was Ant Financial. So a third of that book is interviews and analysis around what Alipay and Ant Financial and Alibaba were doing globally, as well as specifically in China. 
And then when I'd finished Digital Human, I sat down a couple of years ago and thought, a lot of people think that I'm a bank basher and I would claim that I'm not. I'm a bank provoker, being a troublemaker. And you know, I've never thought that banks would be destroyed or disrupted by technology. I've always thought that they are fundamentally challenged by it. But a lot of other people were writing around the idea that banks are pretty dumb and stupid. And I know that banks are not dumb and stupid. I just think they find it incredibly difficult dealing with technology because they have no one who understands technology in their leadership team. And that's the reason why they don't do digital well and they don't do digital transformation well. Most banks treat digital as a project, whereas I treat it as a fundamental mindset change, business model change, cultural change of the organization. So I thought I'll I'll put down the banks I think I can respect and I'll go and talk to them. And so I got the list of the 50 biggest banks in the world by valuation out and went through and ticked. The, the, the banks I thought were doing digital transformation well, and it ended up that there, there were five that stood out, JP Morgan Chase, uh, BBVA in Europe, ING, DBS in Singapore, and China Merchants Bank. And they're five of the biggest banks in the world. Uh, they all, are all getting awards and recognition and making noises about doing digital transformation. And so I reached out to them and said, can I come and talk to your C-suite and find out what you're actually doing, what you've learned, the lessons that you can share with me and things that I could take back and share with others. And luckily for me, they said yes. Um, I did over 40 interviews in a period of about um, nine months uh, and then transcribed the interviews, analyzed the interviews, added my own experiences of my years in doing technology transformation and business transformation and ended up with about 30, in fact, more than 30 lessons that are not an ABC of doing digital transformation, but the things you should have in your kit if you're trying to do digital transformation well. Uh, and they fall into overall four major phases, which right, um, right. Are, they're pretty obvious when you hear them, which is working out what to do, how to do it, doing it, and then doing it better forever. And although I say it's pretty obvious when I say it, um, amazingly, the first three phases can take 10 years. You're working out what to do can take 18 months to two years. Working out how to then internalize that can take another 18 months to two years. Then implementing the internal plan can take another three to five years. So it's not an overnight change. It's a a radical change that's quite lengthy. Uh, And one of the key things in working out what to do and how to do it is something that I keep coming back to, which is Charles Darwin's Origin of Species talks about the survival of different uh, forms of life and his summary was that it's not the strongest the fastest or the most intelligent that survive it's the ones that are the most adaptable to change and i always quote that and then say but if you're changing the wrong way then you also will die so you have to work on how to change in the right way and then make the change and it's very difficult to work out how to change in the right way it's, a, it's amazing insight. And so in talking about these four levels, um, looking at the five institutions as you talk about in your book, are they all in the same stage then, each of them? Or where are they exactly? And, and give me an example of sort of the difference between the five that, that is sort of interesting to look at. Well, they're all in different phases. And um, China Merchants Bank is probably uh, in the number one position because they were born with technology in 1987. They're a very new bank. Having said that, they're still changing radically. But what I found interesting with them is that um, when I was there, they took me to their museum of the bank's history. And the museum of the bank's history was just full of technology, all about 1987. You know, the internet was not here, but it was coming. How they transformed to be the leading 
uh, internet-based bank in China. You know, that, that, that they're now one of the top 50 banks by value in the world. And this is a bank that's only just over 40 years old. But then when you think about Shenzhen and China and how quickly a fishing village of 300,000 people went to a major tier one city of 25 million people, you know, it puts it in context. And that's what China Merchants sure. is all about. Probably BBVA is then the second most advanced because in 1999, they had a money laundering scandal and they swept out the boardroom and the management team and replaced them with a new team uh, led by Francisco Gonzalez, uh, who's now just retired last year. But he, by background, started life as a programmer. Uh, so he really understood technology. And I quote his speech from 1999 when he got the, the job of chief executive, um, because in the speech, he talks about being able to serve the customer anywhere, anytime, all the time. It was a vision of you know, digital access to a bank using the internet and technology, although it wasn't articulated that way. And that's transformed that bank. ING, uh, you know, ING pretty obviously ha um, is, is quite well advanced because of ING Direct. So they've been doing a bank without branches, a digital bank for many years now. They understand how to do that. DBS was interesting that, you know, that they only started in 2009, so they're only 11 years in. But having said that, the CFO of uh, the DBS said to me, the previous chief executive and chairman didn't know what to do or how to do it, but they just knew they had to do something. They didn't know what to do, though. When the new team came in, led by Piyush Gupta, who I quote extensively in the book, then um, they immediately had this vision of the road to travel and how to change, and they followed that road well. And surprisingly, you may think JP Morgan Chase is the most immature of, of the gang because they've only been doing this for about five years. But having said that, I would say that one person that we all know is a very visionary leader is Jamie Dimon. What you may not know is Jamie Dimon gets technology and gets digital. He, he does understand this really well. And the reason I can say that is that when Bank One and JP Morgan Chase merged and he became chief executive in the early 2000s, his very first decision was to cancel the biggest ever outsourcing contract in the world and bring it in-house. And the quote at the time was, Jamie Dimon says it's because technology is what will make our bank. That is fascinating. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting, you somewhere talk about these different uh, areas on how we got into, you know, from the industrial area to the digital data era. Can you explain these different stages? Because I thought it was an interesting sort of way to look at things. Well, I'm not a historian, but I'm a, a traveler, um, even though I'm not traveling right now. Um, but when I am traveling, I typically will be doing a one-hour keynote speech, and um, I'll be in the city for 24, 48 hours. So during the other hours, I generally go on tours and see you know, what's around, because I'm inquisitive, and often end up in a museum. So digital human actually traced back the history of humanity through, through 7 million years um, to the origins of mankind. Uh, based on my experiences of going to museums in South Africa in particular. And one thing that came out of that for me is a realization that the first revolution of humanity was actually becoming humans 200,000 years ago. And the difference between Homo sapiens and all other forms of humanity is that we can not only communicate because we have a voice, but because we have a voice, we can create shared beliefs. And if you look at the other forms of humanity like Neanderthals or Homo erectus or other you know, species that were in our lineage, they didn't have family families bigger than about 50 people because they didn't have that shared belief structure because we had that shared belief structure we had groups of over 100 in villages and i won't go through the whole thing you can read about it in digital human but yeah the second revolution of humanity was um when we became civilized about ten thousand years ago 
And as we became civilized, we created money as a share belief. You know, we believe money has value, even though it doesn't have any value at all. It's just paper. If tomorrow the Fed reissued the $50 bill and said your old one is now worth nothing, then you believe it's worth nothing and you believe the new one is worth $50. You know, it's just a belief. The third revolution was when we became industrial. And because we became industrial, we were going global, connecting across borders, and we created the cross-border banking industry. And that was 300 years ago. Uh, some would say it goes back 500 years to the Medici's in Italy, which it does. But the yep. current structure of banking really is about 300 years old. And in all of these revolutions, there's a fundamental revolution of humankind. But now we're going through another revolution, which is digital. And I think it's really well illustrated by what's going on right now, which is because digital enables us to connect globally in real time, every human on earth can be included in the network if they have access to the technology. You know, at the very basic level, a mobile telephone. At the most advanced levels, studios and um, Zoom meetings like this. But every human on earth actually is getting access to technology. In the last decade, over a billion people who were unbanked are now banked. Yeah, in fact, it's startling when you look at India. You know, in, in the country of India, 32% of Indian citizens were banked in 2010. And by 2018, 82%. So the numbers are phantasmagorical. Uh, and what that actually does is it reinvents the whole idea of money and value and trade and transactions and supply chains and structures and business models. And that's where I keep coming back to banks don't get it because the banking business model was built for the industrial revolution and the industrial era of distributing paper through physical locations, bills of lading, letters of credit, receivables, payables, checks, cash. You know, it's not built for the digital structure that we need today that's the global distribution of data through software and servers. And that's where you know, banks have to turn the model on its head. They built their model based on physicality and now they have to build that model based on digitality, digital. And if they don't do that at, at the core, then they'll never succeed. Now, staying with that theme for the moment, we are going through, a, I think, a very important period in time with COVID-19. How, in your view, does that impact the financial services world, positively or negatively? I view it as certain things will be accelerated and certain developments you know will happen forcefully faster other people may get in trouble faster um, but other than that or maybe just expanding on it what, what's your view on what COVID-19 specifically means to certain events or developments that you were you know that you're seeing today that you weren't seeing three months ago yeah I mean there's a stark contrast between the large banks and the small, more nimble, nimble companies, and particularly the newer challenger banks and fintech firms that were born on the internet and cloud. And cloud is a critical statement here because if you have cloud at the core of the operations, then moving to a working from home model is zero impact, to be, to, to be honest. But most banks have never made a decision to move to cloud because they're worried about security and risk. And they've never had a working from yeah. home model. What they've had is a, um, if you say to them, what's your disaster plan for business continuity and recovery? In a technology context, they've got all of those mapped out for critical planning. In a physical co context, the best you get is, oh, well, we're aware we could have a terrorist attack, so we have a backup office 50 miles away. But a backup office is no good, but no one can go there because they're locked in at home. Uh, and I think the best illustration of this is my own experience during the lockdown, which is um, 
I'm with one of the biggest banks in Britain, a very well-known name that claims to be very digital. When the lockdown occurred, they had their call center in India, and India gave four hours notice for a lockdown. And so the, the call center was taken out with no notice, basically. All of their staff were now working from home, so they couldn't have staff in the UK to answer phone calls. Customers were ringing up in a volume of 10 times greater numbers than usual because customers were worried about money. And there were 10 times less people and no call center. I, I've, actually, I've actually recorded the message that lasted for two, it lasted for two months, and I've recorded it, which is uh, when you called the bank, the message was, sorry, we're not here right now. Try again later. Now, during that period, not just that, but also what happened is the same bank, I got locked out of the online services and they didn't have an app. And eventually I got an answer saying, this is a known technical issue we're trying to resolve, but they couldn't resolve it because no one's there. You know, so it's a complete disaster. What it's actually meant, and I know this for a fact, is that that bank, along with many other banks, immediately went to Amazon, Microsoft and others and said, get us on the cloud tomorrow. Now, the issue with that is that if you were an existing customer of Microsoft and Amazon and other cloud providers, they would support that, but they would put the existing customers first. So if you were not already using cloud, you were really lagging behind the rest of the, of, of the world. Will customers punish the banks for that? I don't know. Um, personally, I, I as an individual probably will, you know, in that I don't want to be with a bank that can't deal with me in a lockdown. No, but you know, banks are, they're so big and, and it's so sticky. A lot of people just don't want the headache uh, of, of changing. I think it's going to take, you know, a long time and, and, and they may ultimately lose market share. But, um, but there's a key point there as well, Van, in that um, people keep telling me that I'm stupid for telling banks to re-architect to be digital and transform the old bank to be a new digital bank. And they keep saying, and I read this in regular consultants' reports, uh, rather than trying to transform the old bank, build a new one uh, or buy one. And I always come back to, to me, that strategy is ridiculous. Because if you don't transform the old bank, what are you going to do? Just let it wither on the vine, rot, and fade away? What does that mean for the customers of the old bank? You're just going to sort of dump on them and say, we're not going to bother trying to be digital for you? It's a terrible strategy. So banks do have to transform and renew and refresh their core systems and do all the things that I talk about, move to cloud. And this is all in the Doing Digital new book because these are the, the lessons from the, to, to these traditional banks. In fact, the biggest lesson of all for me was several of them saying um, the same thing. They said things like, if we don't transform, we'll die. So they know they have to transform the core bank, not just build a new bank. But equally, technology is business and business is technology. They don't separate technology from the business. In fact, it amazed me that a couple of these banks had these sort of Amazon-style two pizza team agile structures. And two pizzas is basically the total amount of food needed to feed the team at lunchtime. If you need three pizzas, the team's too big. But what, amazingly, within that, those two pizza teams, you'd maybe have um, the compliance team, for example, and there'd be designers and developers sitting with the compliance and regulatory people. You'd have the treasury team, and there'd be designers and developers ideating and generating code with the treasury people. It's not separated. It's integrated. In terms of becoming more digital, a lot of banks obviously are looking to partner with fintechs for a number of reasons. There's a lot of people saying this is this is not going to work. A lot of them do that just to, you know, get the competition out or are not really convinced that they, they'll do something. But you have a particular view on how banks could or should partner with fintech startups for very specific 
sort of applications, it maybe has to do with your view on sort of open marketplaces. So maybe expand a little bit on that. What, what do you mean? What's an open marketplace? How do banks work with that? Where do you see this going? And, and you know, compare, obviously, if, if you look at a J, a JP Morgan, obviously, with the kind of resources that they have, they can do a lot of stuff, you know, in-house and still they, I assume, partner with some specific fintechs for some specific applications. But uh, what do you say to a lot of these other banks, smaller banks? Um, how do they go about that? Is that a solution to become more digital, to partner more or do more in-house? What's your, I know there's a lot in there, but what's, I, I'd like to have your thoughts on that. There's a lot in there. And if you look at the uh, chapter structure of the new book, Doing Digital, it starts with talking about leadership and the leadership challenge, then delves deep into the employee challenge, the challenge around customer centricity and building a customer-centric business model. But equally, it has a whole chapter that's all about the partnership challenge. And partnerships are a real challenge um, because banks, most banks, are not good at partnering. They see themselves as this big you know, gorilla. And most of the partners that they're teaming up with, they see as like gnats or mosquitoes around the gorilla rather than being something that's equitable. And uh, you'll never have a partnership if you think that you're superior. You know, a partnership has to be equitable. Uh, put it in your own context of, your partner, um, the person that you live with, the person that you're you know, maybe married to or um, have been with for many years, would you see yourself as superior to them? And if you do, you probably won't have a relationship that lasts very long. Um, and that's exactly what is the core lesson of partnering. You have to have an equitable relationship and treat each other with the same, same respect both ways. What a lot of the fintechs have told me is that most banks come in and they talk about partnership and then they spend months or even years sniffing around the, the startup and then suddenly the startup discovers that they've taken all of their ideas and they're doing it internally how to build trust but i also talk a lot about the fact that we're going through marked phases of how technology and finance are integrating and the fact that we call it fintech you know I've, it doesn't matter it's just integrating finance and technology um, because banks are fintechs if you want to think of it that way it's just that they're much older fintechs and the first phase of this new integration of finance and technology began when cloud computing started to mature in the late 2000s, along with the introduction of the smartphone and apps. And apps, APIs, and data analytics, and artificial intelligence were all the brew that built this integration of finance and technology that we see to today. And the first phase of that was post the 2008 crisis, hundreds of startups getting investment from venture capitalists to launch APIs and apps using the cloud. And... At that time, most of the startups were so disillusioned with banks, they were saying that they were going to just destroy them. And none of them have, not one. You know, the banks are still here and they're doing very well. In fact, they're, they're bigger than they were in 2008. But the second phase was the, the banks saying, yeah, there's all these guys saying they're going to disrupt us, so we better start getting into this and starting to find out what they're doing and you know, get a slice of the action. So a lot of banks started hackathons and open banking days uh, and road trips to look at you know, who's the best startup and they did these amazing days that they spent millions of dollars on and it was all corporate innovation theater um, because none of it ever linked into the bank itself it was all marketing on the periphery at the bank the third generation was where banks started to say you know what we need to co-create we need to partner we need to invest acquire be involved in fintechs and that's been the last couple of years, to be honest. It's um, you know, where we are right now is a lot of banks are doing a lot more studious investment and true uh, investigation of the opportunity with technology, with startups. The fourth generation is going to be the next um, few years post-pandemic, 
where we really start to see uh, banks and startups and fintech challenges and others coming together in this open banking, banking as a service platform through the cloud, uh, integrating APIs into different structures. And one of the key things I say regularly on my blog and in my book is, you know, one bank doing 12,000 things will never beat 12,000 companies doing one thing. And, but the thing is, as a customer, I don't want to go and look at 12,000 companies doing one thing. I want my bank to study 12,000 companies doing one thing and bring the best of those things to me. So the bank's job is to start to integrate those. And that's what's going to be happening in the next few years. And then finally, by the end of the 2020s, I think we'll be at the stage where we stop talking about fintech. Can we just talk about finance integrated with technology and all of these startups and all these banks will be co-creating and working together through the cloud platforms seamlessly and integrated. Interesting. And you also, in your work, talk about uh, the big tech and banks not coming together, but, you know, big tech potentially going into banking. Where we are with that? What's your view? Um, you know, you see these partnerships, you see people say, well, you know, it's just a matter of time before Amazon will become a bank and we'll do everything with Amazon. What's your, uh, you know, what's your view there? Yeah, it's great clickbait and uh, headline making, say the, you know, the Amazon bank or the Facebook bank or you know, whatever, but none of them are going to open a bank. You know, Facebook might launch a digital currency, but the way that Facebook is going right now with Libra, it looks more like PayPal than a currency. Amazon might open bank-like services, particularly around credit and payments, which they've done already. But a full-service bank, it would be shooting themselves in the foot. And the reason I say that is that they make more money out of banks on cloud than they'll ever make by offering bank services. And so why would you want to cut off the hand that feeds you? At the end of the day, right. Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, I mean, they all make a lot of money out of banks who buy their services. And they'll always make more money out of banks buying their services than they'll ever make out of being a bank themselves. No, that makes sense. Do you think that um, developments in, in, in the blockchain space and in cryptocurrencies five years, 10 years down the road may not change radically some of that picture? Or what's your view there in terms of integrating that, that sort of new development into their activities? Well, I mean, blockchain and uh, digital currencies, and particularly central bank digital currencies, are going to change the landscape. You know, we are going to move away from paper-based systems to database systems. And particularly post-pandemic, I think we're going to see a rush to digitalization within the banks. Uh, but equally, we're going to see a rush to digitalization within countries. Because we've you know, fairly obviously seen that if you have to exchange cash during a crisis of a virus, it's not healthy. If you have to touch a pin pad during a crisis to put your pin against your chip, it's not healthy. You know, so what you really need to see is, and I, we will see, is a rush to digitalization. And that will change the landscape significantly. But one of the things, again, that I love is the libertarian view that came from the Bitcoinists, that um, you could decentralize money with no intermediary or bank involved. And I always said, you're going to need a bank involved. Because going back to the revolutions in humanity, you know, we invented share beliefs to allow us to believe money has value when we became civilized, to allow us to store money as value within banks during the industrial period because they're regulated and they have licenses from governments. You're not going to get rid of that in the digital revolution. You're going to add something to that in the digital revolution. And what you add to that is a trusted digital way of exchanging value that still has bankability, is recognized as being valuable as some form of money, and there's a shared belief that that's a structure that we can all live with. So the idea that 
you know, suddenly we go from no central authorities, no governments, no central banks, no regulated institutions in finance to everything being distributed on the network and run by an algorithm, to me, is just ridiculous. It's not going to work. And I've already seen that many times with Bitcoin. I mean, I've lost quite a lot of money on Bitcoin. I've gained a lot of money on Bitcoin. But where I've lost it is because of unregulated companies pretending to be regulated. From, from a regulatory perspective, staying there for a second, how do you see differences uh, between Europe and the US specifically in financial services or banking? Um, are there things in Europe that where they are ahead of the curve or behind the curve? Uh, just conceptually, what, what's your view on, on where we are? Because these are two very different areas and systems. So what's your, what's your five cents on, on the differences and, and the pros and cons? Well, again, in all my travels around the world, um, the two countries that stand out for me as the most advanced in terms of digitalization are India and China. So I'd start by saying China's you know, years ahead of Europe and America um, in terms of their financial technology structures, which is the reason why last year they transacted something like 45 trillion US dollars through mobile payments from consumers um, compared to $114 billion in the USA. India, because the government there has created a technology stack, has created an amazing ability for 1.4 billion people to have digital identities and therefore have bank accounts, which is the reason why they've gone from 34% to 82% banked in eight years between 2010 and 2018. Europe's trying to become one unified uh, area. Um, but as you know, Britain's leaving it. Um, but equally, during this crisis, we've seen all the borders come back. I'm in Poland, and the day they did their lockdown, no one from Germany or any of the other adjacent nations could come into Poland without the correct papers. Um, so it's kind of almost like going back to a pre-European Union period. We've seen Europe trying to create cards to compete with Visa and MasterCard. They've never been able to do that. They keep trying, but they've not succeeded. We've seen Europe trying to create mobile wallets. They haven't succeeded in doing that. But some countries are very good at mobile wallets, like the Netherlands has Ideal. Um, which is a really popular mobile wallet delivered and issued by the banks. Uh, Vips in Norway or Swish in Sweden are mobile wallets delivered by the banks that are really running very well. So it, parts of Europe are more advanced than other parts. Northern Europe is far more advanced than Southern Europe, and Northern Europe is far more advanced than the USA. You know, the USA, to me, is a 20th century economy when it comes to money because cash and checks are still the predominant forms of payments cards yes but um, even with chip and pin it's still generally card and id rather than chip and pin and that's a cultural thing you know it's to do with not having a better alternative and not having an incentive to use a better alternative you know, why hasn't apple pay or samsung pay taken over my friends in china said to me and it's american friend actually in china the reason is because it's ridiculous that the americans came up with a system of payments so America is well behind the rest of the world, to be honest, um, in terms of payments in particular, and uh, consumer okay. payments. It's a, uh, I mean, I call it a 20th century economy. It's the only economy that runs on checks and cash. The only customers who ever send me a check are American customers. The last check I got from an American customer took over a month to get the cash in my account because it has to be processed with the SWIFT network. Uh, and when it did arrive, I lost a lot of money in, in fees and in, in interest. So I, I hate checks, full stop. But I've got an American friend who lives in China, and I think this is one of the best ways to contrast America and China. His American bank doesn't have a SWIFT link, 
So to get cash into his Chinese bank account, he has to go to the American branch of the bank in Shanghai, withdraw the cash physically in their office, and then take it next door to the Chinese bank and deposit it in the Chinese bank. Because there's no electronic link. Equally, you know, in, in the USA, as I was saying, you know, everything is chip and pin based in the rest of the world, but it's card and ID based in the USA. And that will only change when you have a better system. You know, you might think Apple Pay and Samsung Pay, uh, Android Pay are better systems, but they're hardly used. And they're hardly used in the USA and Europe because there's no incentive to use them. Now, people say, oh, younger generation, Gen Z, millennials are using Apple Pay. But generally, it's only used if you have an Apple Watch because then it's convenient. If you, have an, if you don't have an Apple Watch and you have to open the Apple Wallet on the Apple phone, it's just as convenient to get a contactless card out and pay with a contactless card. So that structure is quite interesting. And um, as, as I say, China is so advanced, but it won't work in the rest of the world. And it won't work in the rest of the world, partly because people are very skeptical about Chinese technology companies like Huawei. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting for me, and this is part of what came out of digital human, is that Alipay have this technology structure that's completely open banking based. And because of that, they are the power behind a lot of other systems that are locally based but powered by the Alipay technology. So I, when, when you take India, one of the biggest mobile wallets in India is Paytm, powered by Alipay. I, I, you know, its back end is Alipay. And I say there's a huge opportunity in Europe and in America for a company to come in with a, an Alipay technologies-based system of QR codes and mobile wallets and locally flavor those and take over those markets. And I wouldn't be surprised if that didn't happen in the next few years. Okay, and so coming back to COVID-19 and maybe to, you know, getting to the end of the conversation here, who do you think the biggest winners and losers are going to be, if any, coming out of this crisis, which I think will take longer than expected, specifically on the US side? Any, any particular views or, or things you can think of that sort of out of left field and could surprise people or is it just business as usual? Well, we're not going to see many b banks folding. Um, so the, the, the banks will survive. I think having said that, several banks will be um, severely weakened on their capital buffers during the crisis. And so there's going to be an opportunity for the highly capitalized banks and the biggest banks in the US and Europe to acquire. And acquisitions always been the nature of the financial game for the big banks. So the big banks will continue to get bigger. The mid-sized banks, will, some of them will disappear. But that, that'll be acquisition, not because they failed. In the fintech world, there's going to be a huge squeeze on funding. You know, funding is down about 22% already within most of the fintech communities that I'm talking to. And that's just after a couple of months. So any fintech startup that was in um, the, the phase of moving into the next funding round is going to yeah. actually be severely strained. And some people say that might be half of all fintech startups worldwide. It's, I don't think it's that high. Um, I, I, again, I'd say similar to the banks, about a quarter of the fintech startups will be impacted and will wind down or fail. Having said that, there's also a great opportunity in every crisis. There's you know, um, pressure and, and strain, but also, also opportunity. So there was a headline the other day that Europe's biggest fintech startup, Revolut, is going to acquire companies because they just, in February, got um, a new funding round of $500 million, valuing them at $5.5 billion. And with that money in the bank, they can acquire the weak com companies that will help to um, complete their portfolio of services. 
So the big winners are those who have liquidity and funding. You know, I was, I was actually on a weird show the other day, um, just talking about my own business. And they asked me what was my first decisions when the lockdown came in. My first decisions was to go through every payment that's going out of my business that I could stop and stop them, <laughs> you know, because you need, you need the money in the bank. And equally, every government announcement of any support I took as soon as it became available, because if, you, if you've got the opportunity, take it. Um, we don't know how long this will last. And if you're in a position where you said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm good for a couple of months, you think a couple of months is, is long enough? I, I reckon it's going to be about 18 months, maybe t- two years. You don't need to be funded for two years. What you need to be in a position of saying is, I can get through two years if I have to with no income. That makes sense. And so um, maybe that's the last question. I hate to say last question, but you're going to write more books, right? You're going to do more work around what you're working on and have been working on for a very long time. So what's, let's say in two or three years, what's your next book going to be? And will it be not focused on COVID-19, but will it have an impact on what you're going to write? Or, or are you looking forward to a moment where basically this is just a, a moment in history and I can really go back to basics and, 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 and focus on, on really the core of what I like to think about to talk about? Well, bearing in mind what I just said, we're never going to be in a position where we go back to what it was like before. This crisis has definitely changed every, everybody. And the best illustration of that is the way we're talking today. You know, right. We would not normally do this on video. We would normally have been doing this on um, a phone call. And yet now everybody's immediately moved to using Zoom. Uh, And that's a long-term impact. Uh, By way of example, Zoom had 10 million users in December 2019. And by the end of March, it had 300 million. Yeah, 30 times increase in their business, which couldn't have happened without cloud computing. Going back to my reasoning about platforms and the internet. Uh, everyone signed up to Netflix. Everyone's getting Amazon to deliver stuff to the home. Amazon saw a 24% increase in Q1 in their retail sales. They saw a 33% increase in their uh, cloud services sales. The fact that I've been locked in for almost three months and I'm not going stir crazy is because I have the internet. And equally, I can get stuff delivered to my door um, so I don't have to go out. You know, and I don't have to speak Polish, which is even more important, even though I've, I've been learning Polish. And the fact that everyone's been told to work from home you know, do, do we really think after this crisis finishes, we're going to say to everyone, come back to the office? That's, yeah. huh? The idea of putting thousands of people in one building every day and having thousands <laughs> of people on the roads commuting in and out of New York or wherever every day is gone. It, it won't come back. You know? So the question you asked about my new book, um, it will talk about some of those things around how the pandemic's escalated change. You know, it's probably moved us to 2030. Um, in terms of the technological developments that are now coming into place. You know, it probably would have taken us 10 years to make decisions about cloud and other services like working from home. And those have just been fast-tracked and turbocharged to today, right now. And that will be long-lasting impact. But the key theme I was working on before the pandemic, and I think it's still just as if not more relevant post-pandemic, is that um, when Jamie Dimon led the business roundtable to signing the stakeholder agreement, which was in October last year. And if you didn't catch it, it's basically the 200 largest Fortune 500 companies signing up to an agreement of saying that our employees, customers, and community are just as important as our shareholders. To be honest, that's lip service because it's not true that they treat it that way, particularly when immediately afterwards they sack a load of people the minute a lockdown comes in. But 
post-pandemic, I think there's a very strong justification amongst Gen Z specifically for purpose-driven companies to succeed. And by purpose-driven, the purpose is to do good for society and good for the planet. So sustainability, climate emergency, community support, looking after everyone as well as the shareholder are themes that I think are going to be far more pervasive over the next decade than they have been in the past half century. And the moral compass, you know, bringing back the moral compass, particularly within banks, because banks are at the heart of why business can behave badly if they're funded. You know, if you don't fund bad businesses, they don't behave badly. And when the 2008 crisis occurred, the head of the UK regulatory authority, Lord Adair Turner, said a lot of what banking does is socially useless. And the banks were really sort of aghast at this statement. But I, I think that was very true. Uh, and I think becoming socially useful is going to be an interesting theme for the next decade. Purpose-driven banking that does good for society, good for the planet, good for the community, and is socially useful will become a theme that w- I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes a regulatory mantra. You know, the regulators will say, you have to work this way. Thanks for that. Amazing, amazing conclusion. And, and on this sort of pretty positive and happy note, thank you very much for coming on. Um, if I want to, you know, if people want to check out your work, get in touch with you more in general, what's the best uh, way to do that? Or which, one, which of your venues is, is the most appropriate to go to? I've got a number of websites, but the key one is thefinancer.com. Uh, spelt with an S, not a C, because everyone spells it with a C for some reason. <laughs> so it's short for the financial services, thefinancer.com, uh, where I blog every day. I also have chrisskinner.global as a website platform for, about me as an individual. Uh, and then chris underscore skinner on Twitter or um, on LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever you'll find me as well. Perfect. Well, um, Chris, again, thanks very much for coming on. It was a great conversation. And as always, I'll, I'll keep uh, uh, watching out for everything you, you write and you say. And I look forward to, you know, sit down with you in person at some point, hopefully not too, uh, too long in the future. But uh, great speaking with you. And thanks for uh, being on the show. Thank you. Have a great uh, week. You too. Thanks. Thanks.